welcome to this cast. We've got another one coming at you. Happy New Year to you, even though it's bloody fucking miserable. Really cold here in, in, in Washington. Um, not as cold as it was and has been in Iowa or New Hampshire or all the wilds out there where we are finally anointing Donald J. Trump to be the next president of the United States, which is the sort of dreary backdrop to absolutely everything we do. I fear we're beginning to come to grips with a reality I am not really happy about or looking forward to, obviously. So let's change the subject a little bit today. Oh, I want to say thank you very much for subscribing. And if you hit the 40, 50 minute mark and we suddenly disappear, you can get the rest of it by actually subscribing to us. We've had a huge boost in subscriptions last month or so. So we're heading towards 160,000 people and heading towards 21,000 paid subscribers, which is a record. So however else the podcast and bloggy industry is going, we're, we're, we're thanks to you, we're hanging in, we're doing great. It's, it's wonderful for me today to introduce to you someone I thought about when I was sick over Christmas. And he'll remember the text came in the middle of the night. I just smoked a big fatty and I was trying to sleep. And I'm like, who do I want to talk to you about Israel and the Middle East and anti-Semitism and, and all the rest of it and the left and everything. And I thought, why not my old friend Johnny Friedland? He's the guy to talk to. And he's the guy that's coming today. I'm most grateful. Jonathan Friedland is a journalist and he writes a column for The Guardian in Britain and he hosts their Politics Weekly America podcast. And he's the co-host of the Unholy podcast unholy, with Israeli journalist Yonit Levi. He's also the author of The Escape Artist, The Man Who Broke Out of Auschwitz to Warn the World, along with, and I don't know how he does this, but alongside all his journalism, he writes thrillers under the pseudonym Sam Bourne. He's quite a multitude of talents. Coming up, Justin Briley is on, coming on with his book, The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God. We have Nate Silver coming on, your friend Nate, on 2024 race. We have Christian Wyman, the poet, Christian poet on resisting despair. We've got Abigail Schreier coming on with a book on why the cult of therapy harms children. And also coming up, George F. Will, the great Tory columnist and Jeff Rosen, an old friend of mine who's produced this really phenomenal book on the founders and the pursuit of happiness. Today we have Johnny. Thank you for coming on the discast, Jonathan, how are you? I'm all right, and it's a pleasure to be with you, Andrew. It really is. We've we we we've gone back. We go back quite a long way. Remind me, because your memory is better than me. We met sometime in the early '90s. Exactly right. Your memory is not so bad after all. Don't panic. I was dispatched to the U.S. to Washington in '92 to cover the what, that presidential election as a fellow on the Washington Post. I was a young BBC reporter. I was 25. And then I just loved it so much I had to stay. And I stayed for the BBC and The Guardian. And I was there right till about 97 and came back then to see in the dawn of a, a new dawn, has it not, with, with Tony Blair and all that. But for those four or five years, I was in Washington. And, you know, you and I would run into each other in what was then the social safe way. Do people still speak about the social safe way <laughs> as opposed to the Soviet safe way? Um, it was that era. <laughs> right. Uh, it was a wonderful era, to be honest. Looking back, we had never knew how good we had it. Um, yeah, we it, didn't know 90s, we were born, did we? I know. And it all went to shit. 
uh, yeah, and Jonathan knows a lot about American politics, which is an, also a, a, a dynamic that he's he's pursued his whole career. Jonathan, you've also written and thought a lot about international uh, affairs, and, and especially also Israel and uh, anti-Semitism. And I, I wanted to pick your brain about that. Where are we currently in the war in Gaza, it feels as if maybe the Biden administration is beginning to have some traction in trying to calm down the Israeli uh, onslaught. Uh, it doesn't seem to me, and you tell me whether you see it this way, that Israel is winning the big public relations battle, even though I think it's entirely entitled to defend itself. I wrote last week a, an anguish column, really, about, about how do you win against a, a force like Hamas without collateral damage that truly, truly horrifies. What's your take on it from Britain, Jonathan? How do you feel Israel is holding up and, and where the politics of the West are with Israel? I think they're in a desperately bad place for, for Israel's point of view and for Israel, because there was a window there just after October the 7th, when I think a lot of people would have accepted and understood in a way, as a premise, the point you made, which is that Israel would have to have a right to defend itself given the very particular nature of October the 7th, the particular kind of attack. We may say something more about that in a minute. And and therefore, they have the right to self-defence. And then granted a kind of leeway because of the impossible task of taking on an enemy, and it's now become said so often by rote that we sort of forget to absorb what it's like, an enemy that, yes, embeds itself with civilians, but also has a doctrine by which it regards the death, certainly of your civilians, the enemy's civilians, Israel's civilians, as a win, but even the death of its own civilians as a win. And at just at its simplest, boldest, for propaganda reasons, because images of, of desperately grieving, bereaved parents holding up the shrouded bodies of their children going around the world, make the case against Israel better than they, Hamas, ever could. And so, therefore, they have this odd you know, double interest in civilian death, their own and on the other side. And taking on an, an enemy of that kind means, as you just said in the introduction there, in that, in that question, is going to lead to all kinds of extra collateral damage. And I think that there was a moment, but it was so fleeting, where Western opinion understood that. And at leadership level, government level, it's still sort of understood. So you have the British government and the opposition both accepting that. You have Joe Biden's White House accepting that. But that's very narrowly at leadership level. Out there in the court of public opinion, I, I think not only is it not there now, I don't think it held for very long at all. Very early on, when you go back into the tweets and social media posts of mid to late October, some of the rhetoric around you know, denunciations of Israel, the rhetoric around Israel was as not much less hostile than it is now. In other words, it's not just incremental and quantitative. Okay, we were with Israel when it was X thousand dead, but now that it's, as you and I speak, approaching 25,000 dead and maybe many more, 
this is too much. Actually, the patience was very limited from the... And I think if you are an advocate, if you're involved, you know, in, in Israeli government or elsewhere, and you'll particularly think of the long term, you should be very worried because if a moment like this after October the 7th, you don't have the sympathy of the world, well, something, you know, something very big has run out. And in fact, in fact, I would say it's not just not having the sympathy of the world. I think if anything, and this is something we can unpack maybe, it's actually got, got, got worse. So the, it got worse than Israel's position on October the 6th. And I don't just mean the Hague and the South Africa case about genocide and so on. I'm saying even in the days straight after, where you couldn't have made mustard a genocide case, nevertheless, people were holding placards saying Israel. And this was the thing that I really spotted. The narrative very quickly became, well, in a way, what did Israel expect given 75 years of settler colonialism? And there's much to unpack in all those. But the bit that leapt out at me early on was 75 years. Because until then, all the opposition had been about the occupation, as, as you know, I would say you and I and people of our sort of cohort would call it, meaning since 1967, 56 years, 57. If you're saying 75 years, you're saying the whole thing is illegitimate since 1948. It's a settler colonial venture. And I'm not sure the discourse was there pre-October the 7th. And I can't fully, even in my own mind, explain why an, a, a heinous attack on Israel and Israelis rather instantly made people think the whole thing is is illegitimate. Yeah, the it was really staggering to me that on October 8th, 9th, 10th, there were instant condemnations of Israel and instant sympathy with Hamas across a lot of the left space in the US Um that that really took me, I mean, I expected at some point there to be building opposition because there is, because also for, for, for human reasons, not political reasons. I mean, no one wants to see what's happening over there. But the instant nature of the hostility to Israel in America uh, was shocking to me. And, I th and it, definitely among the young, that's where it's, it's particularly intense, who have no real memory, I think, of... of of how and why Israel came into being. They, they don't think of it in the same way, for example, as something like jo the existence of Jordan or other countries in the region which were created roughly at the same time. They're somehow legitimate, but Israel is utterly illegitimate. And I honestly think it's partly a function of the, the ubiquity of, of critical theory in a lot of the elites in America, and especially in academia, which is reinterpret the entire world in terms of oppressor, white, slash, Jewish, slash, Asian, slash, whatever, oppressed, as in brown, black, developing world, etc. And when you put those together, you have a pretty hideous instant response that this is obviously just simply another act of settler colonial terrorism against an innocent group of people. And that once that rubric has been set, and it's a very crude dumb rubric, to be, be, be frank, they see everything through that prism, everything, nothing, no other factors come into consideration. It's a totalizing idea. And it's a very simple and easy idea. And it gives you this, this sort of moral superiority instantly at the same time. I mean, I was... A, very infectious. It is. I was a student in the late 80s where I remember being struck by 
how dumb so much politics was that it was literally colour co coordinated. It was colour coded, meaning there were people on the left who thought if it's red, you know, aligned loosely with the Soviet Eastern Bloc world, good guys. If it's not red, then it's capitalism and, you know, American. And therefore, we're, they're the bad guys. And people would work out who to support in some distant war by the colour code. You know, well, who's, who are they, they backing? North Vietnam, South Vietnam, tell me, and then I'll know who to cheer for. And you would see very smart people, including people you and I would both know, who were well-read and deeply read. But in the end, boil down their understanding of even complex world affairs to your team, my team you know, NATO, Warsaw Pact, with Reagan, anti-Reagan. That was all they needed to know. And then that passed because we got into the 90s and, you know, the, that old, those old blocks, communist bloc and, every, uh, and the rest, faded away. Now we're at something which is almost dumber, which is hard to believe, but it is again colour-coded, which is the world of white, the world of, of colour. And I'm with that team. And you see people looking to work out which team to be on. And they can hear that Houthis practice slavery. They can hear that Iran or see that Iran is at war with its own women. Doesn't matter because they're in the block that, that is marked the oppressed world, the world of colour, the world against the white West. And therefore, your sympathies have to be with them. I mean, I'm, we, I'm, you know, I'm crudely boiling it down. But in a way, I don't think the, as a worldview, it's that much more sophisticated than that. And, and the one thing that's given me confidence a little bit in recent months is, you know, this slogan, which is thrown back at people often about being on the wrong side of history. And I've taken some comfort from this thought that I've just unpacked, because the left, particularly in progressive opinion, has quite often been on the wrong side of history. That very young people and very fashionable people, you know, and I think about the world of, you know, the Malcolm Muggeridge writing in The Guardian in praise of the Soviet Union and not seeing the famine in the 1930s. Or anyone who was anyone who had sort of fashionable views in that earlier half of the 20th century, I once wrote a, a you know, Sam Bourne thriller about this, was deeply into eugenics. You know, they were on the wrong side of history just because the young, progressive, coolest people, the, the, the most fashionable intellectuals are on one side, doesn't mean they're always on the right side of history. They often are able to go along with ideas that are quite dumb. And I think this oppressed-oppressor matrix, which says, you know, tell me which colour you belong to, and then I'll know whether you're just or unjust. I think that's one of the dumb ideas. Yeah, it, but at the same time, some of it has some continuity. And I'm thinking, that, let me go to... The British figure, Jeremy Corbyn, and talk about that period, because it does seem to me important to understand what was going on there. Who went from your classic red, not red paradigm into a oppressor, oppressed paradigm quite easily. And obviously a man who got things horribly wrong in the, in, in, in the Cold War. I mean, you're defending Cuba, defending Nicaragua, defending the Soviet Union, defending the Eastern Bloc. I mean, we have currently Angela Davis is now a great hero of the American left. This woman was celebrating the killing of people trying to flee East Germany, got an award, a medal from the East German heads, just a staggeringly misplaced loyalty. And you've only got to read Orwell in the 40s to, and read his excoriation 
of left-wing intellectuals and how they don't see what's in front of their fucking nose sometimes for all sorts of good reasons in their, in their, on their behalf. Um, tell, tell us about how, and my view, of course, is that if you have this core critical theory view, which is the world is, is, is oppressed by a group of people who are defined by their race, they have a kind of group interest that is exploiting and destroying the lives of others. They like oppressing others. Uh, you don't often see what's going on. It's a conspiracy, white supremacy. In fact, white supremacy still exists. It fits so easily into the anti-Semitic paradigm, which is, again, you have this group of people who are, who are very wealthy and very successful, who are sort of white, who, are, who have a conspiracy that's involved in hurting and, and creating oppression for other people. This, it's, it's almost tailor-made to be just switched into the anti-Semitism front. Tell me how that actually happens in reality, because the right has a horrible history of anti-Semitism. Uh, and we're not, we're going to, let's just say that up front. We're not here pretending the left has a monopoly on this stuff. No, obviously, quite obviously, the right has a world historical claim to anti-Semitism in a way that nothing else can really muster. But there's a way in which this stuff kind of comes out and sort of slips out from under the curtain. It's a very mysterious thing. In your experience in the Labour Party and in Labour Party politics, and indeed in liberal left liberal journalism, explain to me how you, how you first saw this coming about, what you thought were its reasons, and what did it lead to? Firstly, you're absolutely right to say that not just the, the right have the world historical claim on anti-Semitism, but still, even now in our world now, the violent attacks, the shooting up of Pittsburgh Tree of Life Synagogue and so on, they're perpetrated by figures who identify with and are steeped in the language of the right. That's where the lethal threat to, to Jews and Jewish communities is still. So we should say that. In the US? In, in the US, and I would say... You have yeah, a slight Islamist... The, well, there's, there's that. To it in Europe. There is, but in t that's true. There's been some perpetrators drawn from the, there. But even here, some of the attacks in, you know, synagogues in Germany and so on have come from the, mm. the white right, to, for want mm. of a better phrase. That doesn't d undermine the salience of the issue that you're raising of left anti-Semitism. On the contrary, left anti-Semitism sort of hurt so much to, for Jews because it was unexpected, because it was a betrayal. In other words, Jews knew to be, to be vigilant and prepared and ready for the threat from the right. That's deeply embedded in the folk memory of Jews. Jews know how to sort of, they, they, they can detect the first, you know, rustling of the leaves that tell you that storm is coming on the right. But built into that was an assumption that therefore the left liberal opinion, they'll be our protectors, our allies, our friends. And so when anti-Semitism comes from that sector, there's a shock and a disappointment, even a heartbreak. And that's why I think it gets so much more attention. Because in a way, there's a weird, world-weary resignation about, you know, some, about Marjorie Taylor Greene talking about Jewish space lasers. Of course, what do you expect? You know, who's surprised by that? But a leader of the British Labour Party, what? They were the Jews' allies when Jews were new immigrants into the East End of London, you know, equivalent like the Lower East Side in New York. Or whatever. 
And Labour was Labour Party was a big supporter of the foundation of Israel. It was in power when Israel was founded. Was a huge supporter of Israel. Yes, although they're a complex relationship too, because Ernest Bevan, a Labour Foreign Secretary, opposed the creation of the State of Israel and didn't want to, and Britain voted to abstain in that famous resolution in 47 oh. under a Labour government. So Labour has a sort of complex history, but nevertheless, Labour was, you know, the, the home for a lot of uh, immigrant Jews in Britain. And it was seen as being, you know, it was in some ways where their assimilation happened. It was where they kind of, a lot of them learned English, you know, in Labour Party and Communist Party branches and all that. We're getting back into the history. But that's the emotional sort of underpinning. The, 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 the point worth making is it didn't suddenly explode out of nowhere in 2015. It had always been around. It was marginal. It was, free, you know, fringe and sort of kooky. You knew that there were people who harboured these uh, the ideas you were referring to, that sort of conspiratorial, that there, that, that there was a power elite who were rigging uh, the global economy and left usually unsaid but implied was, you know, we know who they are. And that was around and it often did map onto or overlap with people's perspective on Israel-Palestine as an issue. And so there were, there were the people who, for example, you know, who literally protect the Jewish community in Britain, who have guards standing outside schools and synagogues, which has been going on, by the way, for decades. They have a monitoring unit. They would be aware of the fringe meeting here and the banner there and the newsletter. They kept an eye on it. We knew those people existed. The, the problem of 2015 was you suddenly had a whole lot of those people who thought that the leader of the party and the people around him were allies for that who thought that this was their moment and that suddenly what had been fringe moved more central. And that was the what made that period so intense was that, you know, it wasn't like it was a new thing, but suddenly you had to take it more seriously and had to explain to people why, you know, you can feel uh, absolutely fine, knock yourselves out, saying that, you know, Israel is an occupier and you oppose the occupation. There's no problem with that. But if you have a rhetoric that suggests there is a shadowy force that runs global affairs called Zionism, that might be a problem. You might have a problem. And How if you, close you know, to that was Corbyn in, in the past? I mean, we've seen him go and go and visit Hamas, uh, for example. When, when did that happen? I'm trying to remember. Um, well, ha Hamas came to a meeting that he was at in London where they had representatives there and he welcomed his friend, as he put it famously, our you know, friends, our friends from, Hamas. from Hamas and his Hezbollah, actually, uh, were at that meeting. He, uh, you know, there was an Islamist leader who had been, uh, the authorities in this country had sought to block his entry into the country. An immigration tribunal found that he had, and, and you know, ruled that he had deployed the language of the blood libel, the old myth that Jews use the blood of Gentile children for ritual purposes. This guy had said that in speeches. It was known that that's why the authorities didn't want him here. While his appeal was being heard, he was in the UK. Who invites him to the House of Commons to take tea on the terrace? One Jay Corbyn backbench. There was a whole string of these episodes that had been there in the past that actually some people who followed these things were aware of and talked about when Jeremy Corbyn ran for the Labour leadership in the summer of 2015 and sort of said, really, we're going to go for a guy with a record like this? And 
you know, the Jewish Chronicle was doing this stuff. You know, I was raising it in peace. But nobody really sort of thought that mattered. Nobody, certainly nobody thought it was disqualifying. And then once he was in post, more and more of these episodes came up. So, you know, just as an example, because it became a flashpoint, was that there had, there was a mural that was painted on in a part of East London by, I think, an American artist who go, goes by the name of Mir One, which depicted a, a group of, there's no other way of saying it, sort of hooked-nosed, bearded bankers playing a literal game of Monopoly, you know, with dollars and coins, on the crouched backs of the poor, and crucially important, the, the, the poor of colour. A whole lot of black men crouching with, while well, white, bearded, hooked-nosed men count their money on their backs. This had been up in East London, you know, predictably Jewish groups and others complained. It was posted on Facebook that the mural was finally going to come down. A picture of it, and Jeremy Corbyn on Facebook writes, why? Why is it coming down? And then says solidarity to the artist because Diego Rivera had his painting removed from the Rockefeller Centre, you're in good company, and so on. When that emerged, uh, you know, people, when once he was leading, it had been three years earlier, there was all sorts of, you know, back, uh, claims of he didn't really see the image and he was speak, speaking up for it on, on free speech grounds. And people thought, you're never a free speech guy when people say racist things. You're always the guy who wants to ban racist expression. Good for you, but suddenly you're the free speech guy. It was one instance, and there were many little things like that. bits of video that came up where he was heckled at some public meeting by two, you know, Jewish speakers, and he turns to the audience and says, "This is the problem. Zionists, they may be born here, um, but they, no matter how long they've lived here," he said, "or even if they're born here, they don't understand English irony." Yeah. And he later said, "No, he was talking about Zionists." Well, you don't talk about where Zionists were born or how long they've lived somewhere. You know, Tony Blair's a Zionist. No one would have said how long has, you know, no matter how long he's been here, Tony Blair doesn't understand English irony. It, to me, it was a very, it was a, 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 partly of his generation. You know, Jeremy Corbyn is 70, I think. It was a kind of, you'll recognise this, a sort of shire golf club, blue blazered anti-Semitism, yeah. a particular kind of English middle class. It was nothing they, left to wing about it. Well, they have no sense of humour. <laughs> the worst thing you could possibly say of someone in England, they don't have a sense of view. What struck me about that stuff was that the mural, for example, is grotesque. <laughs> it is not a subtle thing. Yeah. It could have been in Der Sturmer. It was, it, was, it was just simply outrageous how anyone could look at that and say, now I, I'm one of these crazy people that thinks we should allow all sorts of freedom of expression, but, but I have a record of defending all sorts of indefensible things on those grounds, but not Corbyn, as you say. Right. How did that affect... The Labour Party as a whole. How did how did this? Obviously, there were ructions, and there were, and he denied it. He claimed that he's against racism of all kinds, including that against Jews. He he had an almost impossible time attempting to have meetings with various groups that ended badly or horribly. Yeah. Yeah. And then then of course he was subject to a tabloid attack on all these questions from the right. Um, uh, at what point did it seem as if this was getting to make the Labour Party an uncomfortable place for a, a, a Jewish Brit to be? Well, early. I mean, I, I 
wrote a column about this in i mean i'd written about it already when he was a candidate but i wrote it again i wrote a column saying labor has become a cold house for jews bringing in this some of the emotional points we made before about the heritage of it you know that it was just obvious in my household, just in the same way that, you know, you don't eat on Yom Kippur, you vote Labour, you know. My father, my grandparents, it was, and I didn't know anybody in my family. My dad would always wear a red tie on election day. It was seen as being part of becoming British for a lot of Jews, that this was the place mm. that had welcomed them. And there was a perception mm. that the Conservative Party mm. was the aristocracy and the landed classes who would be the kind who would look askance at a Jew, whereas the Labour Party was the party of the cities and urban and they got, they were, and so there was all of that history going on. And suddenly you had a leader who could have made a remark like the English irony remark or not see the mural when it's staring him in the face and a dozen other little episodes like that, which we could talk about. But the problem was always how it was dealt with and how it was received. So I mean, I'd ha I'd, I, I have only talked about this, I think, once or twice before, but just it's illustrative and we're having a longer conversation so we can mention it. I wrote that column about a cold house, Labour becoming a cold house. I didn't know when I wrote that, that at that time, Jeremy Corbyn was the subject of one of those fly-on-the-wall documentaries where a camera was following all, all the time for Vice News. And caught on camera was him on that day speaking to his press secretary and saying to the press secretary, so, you know, what's in the papers? And actually the press secretary sort of says back to him, well, what have you seen? And he says, well, just that column by Jonathan Friedland, utterly disgusting, subliminal nastiness was the phrase he used. Go back to the piece. It is so mild. It's almost slightly meek. I'm, if anything, I'm slightly embarrassed about it. It's a kind of apologetic piece by a Jew saying, look, I don't want to get in the way. Obviously, it's wonderful if Labour has got a, a new energy and everything else. But I just have to mention that this small British community is only 270,000 Jews in Britain. We're feeling a little put out. I'm sure it can be put right. Don't worry about it. You can still criticise Israel as much as you like, but just deal with a couple of these things. It wasn't utterly disgusting nastiness. And what an interesting word to use, subliminal. As Ooh. if a Jewish columnist is communicating messages in some kind of hidden code. It's a very mm. interesting word to use. It doesn't make any sense. And the person he was talking to, Seamus Mill, was he the guy in the, the back of the car with him? Yeah, he's on the end of the phone, yes. He's on the other end of the phone. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so... Um, who, another who was extraordinarily dark and nasty character. Well, I mean, you know, you, you that's your view. He and okay. I had been colleagues together at The Guardian. We'd always got on Forgive very me. well. No, but, I, you know, I, people have strong views on this subject. But, you know, we'd got on well. But that was that was a difficult moment to, to, to hear that. And but the reason I mention it is because it showed the attitude of the leadership at that point. They weren't thinking. Right. Here's an ethnic minority in Britain that is feeling unhappy. Let's deal with this and make it. Let's make this right. Let's bring these people in. Let's call up this guy who's written this, but let's talk to lots of other people. It, it wasn't that at all. The language immediately became, and this is why it escalated and escalated until it became a national issue. It became, this is being weaponized. This is a, this is a tool. It's not really what it seems. They're not really unhappy. They're doing this to thwart Jeremy. And he became Jeremy, this sort of saintly figure, not a normal politician. And therefore, it was 
Here's this group of people who, for some reason, want to stop Britain having its one chance of socialism. And people would write things like, "It's you know we need to nationalise the railways and put them into public ownership, but one powerful group is stopping us. You would see that on social media. As if Jews really couldn't care less what the, about the mural or whatever else, but really they were just determined that nobody come along who might share the wealth of the country and help poor people have decent trains that run on time or decent hospitals. So it suddenly the the response to the case of anti-Semitism became itself anti-Semitic. It was suggesting this was some sort of conspiracy. And the crucial thread all the way through was that Jews don't tell the truth. They say they're hurt. They're not. This is a lie. It's to protect Israel. It's to do down a good, saintly, principled man. And this word that would go be used again and again about weaponizing, they're weaponizing anti-Semitism by the way, as if anti-Semitism is a nice thing, which is shouldn't be turned into a weapon, as opposed to here's an ethnic minority who are defending themselves against racism, which is how the left would normally see any equivalent episode. So it got ramped and ramped up and ramped up, and it became all-consuming for several years, really, right until Jeremy Corbyn eventually stepped down, and you had a new leader whose very first speech as leader said, I am going to eradicate this poison, as he put it, by its roots. He was going to pull it up by its roots. And since then, it's been much easier. But, no, you know, I've just, just as I said, it didn't appear overnight on 2015. It wasn't going to disappear overnight in 2019. This is something that has such a long history. I mean, in Europe, you know, they, in the 19th century, they were, there was an, a view that described anti-Semitism. Bebel said it's the socialism of fools. You know, the idea there is a rich elite who are, th who are doing down the workers and it's Jewish. That is a that is a thread through left thinking. It's not a coincidence it would appear on, in in the British Labour Party, but it just was never owned or admitted or addressed. How would you counter the the argument that some people say? Well, look, anti-Semitism has at times been weaponized. People make criticism of Israel, a legitimate criticism of Israel, and suddenly called you're an anti-Semite. I mean. I, I'm like just today, for example, I wrote a, a rather anguished piece last week about uh, the death toll in Gaza, yes. and and took a, I've taken a strong position. This is not genocide. In fact, it's obscene to call it genocide, but it is unbelievably awful. Yes, and we do have to worry about the impact. First of all, the sheer moral enormity of it of children. Yes. This is a a place where f I found this a forty percent of the people there are under fifteen. I mean, it's staggering how young the population is. So you're yeah. also going to be killing young kids. You're going to be killing a lot of those, which makes it particularly grotesque. But immediately, I do a heartfelt thing. I am an anti-Semite. Immediately. Yeah. That's the first, the first, call, first leading comment on the piece is well, he's an anti-Semite. And yeah. so there is an element in which that, I think particularly in America, much less so than Britain, actually, but more so in America, in which people felt, felt very constrained in what they could say without having that being launched against them. Yeah, and I really deplore that, and and it shouldn't happen, uh, and yet I know it does happen, and 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 you've just clearly been on the receiving end of it. Where I, you, the rule of thumb I uh, apply here is that if not just you know a an individual Jewish politician or journalist, but if the the mainstream organized Jewish community are saying something, as they were in this case. I don't think you then call, say to them that they're weaponizing it. That was mm. the problem. I think 
you know, of course, there were conservative politicians who and newspapers which jumped on the anti-Semitism affair and loved it because it was discomfort for Labour and it was in the period where of Brexit and they were pushing for Boris Johnson and fine that maybe those people were indeed weaponizing, but the word would be used very freely, and so. You know, for example, a British, long-time British Labour MP, Margaret Hodge. Uh, yeah, she was subjected to absolutely horrible oh, abuse. Oh, I mean, when you f- go into her, she showed me some of the Facebook messages and she got tens of thousands, tweets, messages, you know, the misogyny, the hatred, the loathing. And she, this is because she had mentioned something that people didn't really know about her, which is that she was an immigrant. Her parents were German German Jews who fled uh, Germany. They went via Egypt, eventually came here. Her first language was German, not English. And her father had said, keep a suitcase by the hall. Keep a suitcase in the hall, by the front door. You never know. And she mentioned this. And immediately people were saying, how dare you say that Jeremy Corbyn is Hitler? You know, you're weaponizing this. I mean, I talked to her at great length. She wasn't weaponizing anything. She was actually recovering of childhood trauma. And she was speaking honestly about that. So if you want to say that the Daily Telegraph was weaponizing anti-Semitism or the Times or Rupert Murdoch, fine. But if you're saying that to somebody who was a child refugee from Nazism, then you've got a problem. And that was... The, so there, I think there are these distinctions. And, and, and I think you are right that people use this far too freely. And they use it to attack critics of Israel when they shouldn't because criticism of Israel is not, you know, necessarily anti-Semitic, but nor is it no. never anti-Semitic, right? No, so, absolutely. You, I mean, you and can have people lots sometimes, of criticisms yeah. of Israel's foreign policy and then you and you and other people are criticizing it and then suddenly they come out with a remark like, well, 75 years and you're like, oh, whoa, 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 whoa yes. wait a minute here. That's right. You actually don't believe Israel has a right to exist at all. Um, right. and, and And you discover that that's going on underneath this. Let's, I want to talk just for a second. We mentioned it earlier about the October 7 attacks, because I don't think many people understand how actually psychologically brilliant they were in some respect, despicable, despicable beyond belief, that how they really targeted exactly that inherited trauma of the Holocaust, that they, they, they did something to tell Israelis, you're not safe even here. And we will commit the same atrocities against you as the Einsatzgruppen did in Germany. We will go out and we will gun you down, child, whatever you're doing, wherever you are. We are going to be. And I, I do think that when both you and I said there was a moment after October 7th when Israel needed to take a deep breath, the way America needed to do after 9-11, very similar responses. The, the, the rage... And the hurt are entirely justified, absolutely entirely. If you did not feel that, you missed what was going on. And that is why, in fact, I find it persuasive, actually, just psychologically. The Israelis were like, fuck it. No, we're going to we have to fight back against this now with all our might. It, it triggered something, a deep nerve in in Israelis, which is the reason Israel exists at all. It's because everywhere else you had the suitcase in the hallway. And I, I felt I, I, I was, 
I was, I was, I was, I was genuinely aghast at the pictures that I saw and at the acts that I, because it reminded me of the 30s and 40s. So that was what it was designed to do. And, and therefore, it was also designed the way that Al-Qaeda designed 9-11 to provoke an overreaction that might actually make things worse. And I fear with, I totally understand why Israel fell the way it did. But I also, as a supporter of the place, I'm, I'm anguished about it having fucked it up, essentially, yeah. and, and where it goes from here. I think we're in a similar place, Andrew, really. We're hearing what you've just said there. Let's just go... Hi there. This is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the DishCast. You'll be able to add it to your DishCast feed and never have this, hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you too for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dish cast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. AndrewSullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe. <laughs>